Welcome to day two of the Keaton Shelley Prize Advent Calendar. If you're listening in 2020, this is paving the way for the 2021 prize. This year we're creating some resources for our young romantics, and indeed our older romantics, which includes the lifetimes and places of John Keats, mapped and narrated on Google Earth. This was inspired by our epic Google Earth map of John Keats' final voyage, which told the story of his long journey from England to Italy. For day two, we've chosen to read Keats' short but endlessly fascinating lyric, In Drear Nighted December. In drear nighted December, to happy, happy tree, thy branches ne'er remember their green felicity. The north cannot undo them with a sleety whistle through them, nor frozen thawings glue them from budding at the prime. In drear nighted December, to happy, happy brook, thy bubblings ne'er remember Apollo's summer look, but with a sweet forgetting they stay their crystal fretting, never, never petting about the frozen time. Ah, would twas so with many a gentle girl and boy, but were there ever any, rived not to pass a joy, the feel of not to feel it, when there is none to heal it, nor numb sense to steal it, was never said in rhyme. These 24 lines are, in their way, as provocative as anything Keats ever wrote. Richard Woodhouse, one of Keats' greatest champions during his life, described the last four lines as an excrescence. Part of the problem is the many manuscript versions of the poem, eight at least, most not in Keats' own hand, including the transcript by John Hamilton Reynolds in the Keats Shelley House collection. The textual variants begin at the beginning. Is it a poem about in drear nighted December, suggesting a universal, even grand statement, or the more specific and personal in er drear nighted December? My automatic spell check corrects nighted to nighted with a K, producing a third reading of Sir December. The major bickering concerns the memorable but infinitely enigmatic line, the feel of not to feel it. This is what so unnerved Woodhouse. I've tried unsuccessfully to admire the third stanza of Drear Nighted December as much as the two first. I plead guilty even before I'm accused of an utter abhorrence of the word feel for feeling substantively. But Keats seems fond of it, and will engraft it in aeternum on our language. Be it so, I will conquer our dislike. But the great objection is that the last four lines are an excrescence, and ought to have some connection with the four first, which are an application of or rather an antithesis to, the first stanzas. Woodhouse even rewrote the line to try and smooth its rough edges, to know the change and feel it, which is clearer in its way, but far less catchy. Woodhouse's mixed feelings seem oddly appropriate for a poem whose weird, slippery syntax and logic strains to convey a similar confusion of sensations and experience. We can use Woodhouse's act of rewriting to guess his interpretation, the first two stanzas draw on the changing seasons to portray an emotional cycle from joy to melancholy and back towards joy again, nor frozen thawings glue them from budding at the prime. Fans of Keats' odes will recognise an early Keatsian deployment of too happy happy to suggest a carefully ironised surfeit of pleasure. Part of the problem, of course, is that Keats is human while the natural beings he describes, whether a tree, a brook or a nightingale, are not. And here is where the problem stanza number three comes in. It begins with a wistful, disappointed sigh. Ah, would twas so with many a gentle girl and boy. But what is the poem sighing for, exactly? 
The straightforward transition from happiness to sadness and back to happiness again, imagined in the opening stanza, or the sweet forgetting of his successor, or both, or are these the same thing? If a blessing of human consciousness is the capacity to experience joy, a curse is how memory taunts us with it in drearer times. Ignorance may be bliss if you're a winter's tree or frozen brook, but awareness that ignorance is bliss is a trickier proposition. The added problem seems to be that this isn't just a state of mind that can be switched on or off, but a sensory and developmental experience. Humans, at least humans like Keats, can't just compartmentalise their feelings, they are shaped and changed by them. Even if good times return after bad, the bad times have altered our experience of the good. It's a head spinner and a nerve jangler. Woodhouse's To Know the Change and Feel It takes us more or less this far. Keats' poem puts this through a blender. Good and bad commingle, both in the head and the heart. That striking use of writhed is at once unpleasant. Snakes come immediately to mind, and just a little bit sexy too, especially when joy is in the offing. Some critics have suggested that the feel of not to feel it, which follows immediately after, lands as if from another poetic planet. It wrenches itself loose from the poem and grows greater in intensity and suggestion, wrote Alvin Whitley in 1951. This one line, strictly speaking, outgrows its context and forces the whole to become something of a failure. Whitley interprets the feel of not to feel it as the pain of feeling or not feeling, the pain of no longer feeling the joy once felt when there is no one to heal the pain, or numb sense to heal the pain away, or to steal a person against the pain. This yearning for numbness is fair enough, but not the whole truth either. Is the problem suggested by past joys, the fact that the joy has passed and been replaced by misery, or that there was joy in the first place, which now taunts the unhappy speaker? Would it be better never to have loved and lost? Full stop. I think it's Whitley's insistence on pain that bothers me. Isn't what makes Keats' phrase so weird and hard to pin down, because it wants its cake and eats it too, what he elsewhere calls a sweet forgetting, another strange phrase, because how can something be sweet if you've forgotten it? The feel of not to feel it seems to want to remember and forget the experience of joy, and also the memory of past joy. Or is that to forget to remember the experience, or perhaps to remember that it was forgotten? Whitley wasn't wrong to suggest that the line makes the rest of the poem feel like a failure, but could this be because it describes a revelation of a sudden, complex, ineffable new feeling that makes previous notions of happy and sad seem themselves like failures? That the third stanza hits a note, the feel of not to feel it, so fresh and unusual that it cracks the conventional imagery of the previous two, a new sound, like the Beatles, I want to hold your hand. The inconsistency that so unsettled Woodhouse was in reality an innovation, both personal and artistic, to boldly say in rhyme, as Keats himself might have put it, a new feeling and one that had never been said in poetry before. This lofty ambition is signalled by the poem's form. Rhyme chimes knowingly with prime and time, which had previously stuck out in their respective stanzas by being denied a rhyme. Keats wrote the poem in December 1817, at an especially unsettling moment. He had just finished the first draft of Endymion, the great trial of his poetic powers that would shortly cause him no little heartache, both at the hands of the reviewers and in his own estimation. Does that reference to Apollo's summer look capture the strange anti-climax of achieving a goal, only to feel immediate dissatisfaction, because in achieving that goal 
you realise you've moved way beyond the person who set the goal in the first place. There are even more personal reasons why December 1817 would have chimed with the poem's endlessly shifting meditation on sorrow and joy. Over the previous three months, Keats' brother Tom had slowly exhibited clearer and clearer signs of consumption, not long after returning from a trip to France, where, if some accounts are to be believed, he lost his shirt at gambling and in Paris's red-light district too. By January 1818, he would be spitting blood beyond all doubt. Keats' own health was also newly unsteady, thanks in part to too much social racketing, but also to the doses of mercury he began taking in October. Like Tom, the origin of what he called his poison was pleasure, at least in the short term, a sexual encounter on an extended visit to Oxford. Whether Keats' brothers, suddenly among the gentle boys and girls, now writhing with past joys. In any case, it's little wonder that in that drear night of December, Keats was making new connections between joy and sorrow, memory and forgetting, feeling and thinking, not feeling and not thinking, faster than his words could carry them. Thank you for listening to this Keats Shelley podcast for the Keats Shelley and Young Romantics Writing Prizes. For more news about this year's prize, please visit our website, keatshelley.org forward slash prizes, or follow us on Twitter at Keats Shelley.